In this episode, we wait out there with Andrew Grillos from Gunnison, Colorado. Andrew learned to fly fish side by side with his father growing up in Colorado, learned to tie as a teenager, and eventually ended up guiding on the Gunnison River. Andrew went on to guide in Colorado, Alaska, Chile, New Zealand, and Washington, and I might be missing a few in there. He is also a signature tire for Umpqua. We discuss some of the more interesting and surprising clients Andrew has guided over the years, using visualization to help fish your flies more effectively, the Skagit River system in western Washington, and how working with bamboo helped Andrew reconnect with fly fishing after a stroke left him struggling to get back to the sport he loves. Welcome to the Wade Out There Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Shemchuk. At Wade Out There, we believe fly fishing is special, but not elite, and that anyone can become a great fly fisher if they are willing to go, learn, and teach. Join me as I talk with other fly fishermen and women about their unique journeys into fly fishing, the rivers they fish, and the tactics and philosophies they practice. For those who can never leave the river in their hearts, this podcast is dedicated to helping you make the memories that keep us all coming back to wait out there. Welcome, Andrew. Thanks for being on the Wait Out There podcast. Oh, yeah. I'm always honored to be interviewed for these kind of things. And I just like talking fishing and my experiences. It's been like over two decades of this fly fishing nonsense has kind of pushed me all over the world. Well, that's what we're about to do. So I'm I'm pumped to do that as well. Let's talk some nonsense. Charlie Craven recommended that I that I talk to you and mentioned that you had an interesting story and passionate angler and that we might enjoy talking. It was great talking to him. Another a great tire as well. Such a great guy. Yeah. Like outgoing memory kind of thing. Like my wife, Autumn, was never like Andrew's girlfriend back in the day. Like we'd hit Charlie's every time we were in Denver and he'd be like, hey, Autumn, how are you? Like yeah. uh, not just like the significant other, like just like whatever sidekick kind of thing. And like getting that kind of, I don't know, like that personal stuff out of Charlie was a big deal. Did he influence your fly tying or help you with that? Or uh, No, not at all. Yeah, I just got to try to keep up with him. <laughs> I, uh, I recently tried doing some kind of soft tackle with two tungsten beads in it, trying to uh, like chase his two tungsten bead deal and yeah, the two bit hooker thing. Like we joke, like, uh, man, we're going to sell a whole pile of those and. I was like, yeah, you're no dummy. You got two tungsten beads. Those things will get stuck in the bottom. And <laughs> like, uh, like, like this kind of banter back and forth. Oh, man. Yeah, like, uh, yeah, like, so my super fo- like buoyant foam flies just get stuck in the trees. And yeah, like they float well. And people will just like rip them off in the tree, whatever. Yeah, I really enjoyed talking with Charlie. And I also uh, noticed that you're, you have connections with, uh, Jennings Hester and fishing the good fight over there. We recently talked with him on the show as well. So two great guys and uh, I'm super pumped to talk to you today. Just uh, talk about your experience and your journey because both of them mentioned you as being somebody who has some great stories. Sweet. I'm honored. Like I just said, let's talk about how you got started in fly fishing. Also, I want to say that I like your throat tattoo. (laughs) We talked about that before the show. I'm never going back to white collar. Yeah. I guess my beginning in fly fishing was kind of my own interest and always into the outdoors and fishing was always super boring, like power bait and drowning a worm. And I was like, uh, hey, dad, this fly fishing thing looks pretty fun. Let's go try it. 
and just bought the crappiest fly rods and had like uh like automatic fly reels from the like garage sale just terrible crap to get started and get after it and have fun i had an automatic fly reel too starting out this design yeah, <laughs> 70s and 80s it was probably like futuristic technology exactly yeah my dad get, had it was one of my dads from the 70s where were you starting out with your fishing kind of experience and my first trout that i ever caught on a fly rod was a uh, saint Vrain creek kind of like outside of boulder colorado and it's all big deal because what's his name john garrick fishes there and yeah i don't know it was just like pretty typical like small like small to medium water like big pockety pool and threw my stimulator in there and got probably like a little bitty brown and it was like always looking forward from there or something like never look back and your father had a big influence in your your fly fishing as well is that right he just took me all over the state and like scouting for elk hunting places and like being like dabbling in fly fishing we'd be like oh look at that river that looks really good it was like there's good structure there and look at that deep run and learning all the terminology like there's a big shelf over there oh look at that pocket water and like everywhere that we could we'd get after it buckets yeah kind of like learned by bouncing stuff back and forth like uh, my dad would be like hey i threw a, a joe's hopper in that kind of big foamy spot behind the rock and i got like a five pound brown and like same here i'd be like i i pulled a woolly bugger through that fast riffle and i got a great big rainbow and just like super beginners learning from each other so you kind of learn together then yeah together there's something cool about fishing with someone that's kind of at the same level i had that experience when i was in colorado and that's kind of when i started really getting into fishing fly fishing more i'd grown up fishing but fly fishing not as much i had friends that they knew maybe just a little bit more than me but we could kind of progress together and like he'd learn something or we'd go back and forth and switch flies and talk about where we how we caught fish and stuff and it's it's certainly fun but i also think it's productive was kind of tough as I progressed super fast and started guiding in Gunnison, Colorado. And he'd come over and fish with me and I would guide him and just be like, God, he doesn't listen because he thinks we both learn together and he's on some even plane and not at all. I'd be like, God, you don't know how to tie that knot right and your shit's broken off in the tree. And God just, uh, I would talk to my mom like, God, it was so difficult guiding Michael today. And she's like, yeah, you should start <laughs> hiring guides together. <laughs> Don't guide your parents or your significant other. Yeah. And then you've been all over the world since then, right? So you kind of grew up fishing Colorado and then guiding in Colorado. How did you get into guiding? Was that something that you just knew that you wanted to do? Or is that something that was part-time at first? Or It was uh, something that I wanted to do since I was a kid and getting like Fly Fisherman magazine or some terrible old magazine like American Angler. There was these, this ad in the back for high mountain drifters, which seemed like a huge deal, like this far off mythical place, the Gunnison river from like growing up in the Denver suburbs. And when I went to college at Western state in Gunnison there, and I was like, Oh my God, it's that, that fly shop. Wow. And I was a super regular there and they respected my knowledge enough that when their kind of head guy just fizzled out and kind of, they got, let him go. They're like, yeah, this Andrew kid seems to know his stuff. Let's bring him on. Cool. Do you remember some of the harder things early on or some of the things that, you were, that were more challenging as as a beginner when you're starting out in that area, maybe even with guiding and stuff like that, something you had to kind of figure out and progress through? Are you talking about like beginning fly fishing or beginning guiding? Either, both. All right. Yeah. So like early on in guiding, I kind of learned how to like manage my own expectations and kind of read people. 
I would like work my ass off for somebody that didn't, I didn't get the right feel and get like some terrible tip. Like a, a fall day tip for trout fishing is typically a hundred bucks. And I was like, God, I just worked my ass off and got $35. And uh, just to try to like read the people and read the situation, kind of like real life stuff. And like I connected with some really cool people in those days. And just by being genuine and honest and trying to like golden rule there, like treat others like you want to be treated kind of thing. And I believe from the very beginning, I built a super tight, like repeat client base and hung on to some really interesting, fun people. My most regular best people ever was like a father and son from Texas, kind of like similar age to my dad and I. Yeah, the Warshams, they were such badasses. <laughs> yeah, I have like another super funny one, like not funny, but she was super cool. So this lady named Marty, probably uh, back then, I bet I was like early 20s and like former skateboarder, snowboarder, like party or drunk guy. And I connected with Marty and she was like probably like in her 70s at that point. Like kind of like 75 year old, like overweight Texas lady with like lipstick on her teeth and just like the sweetest lady. And she had been guided all over the West with her background of getting guided. She like, she knew the routine and I was thinking, I'd be like, all right, throw it by the bush there. And her fly would be like a laser beam right where I wanted it to go. And we had some fun times like old Marty and I like a, like tattooed painfully hungover guy. And, and she was super cool and understanding. So she, she surprised you a little bit, huh? Yeah, definitely. Like that's somebody that I kind of read wrong from the beginning. And I was like, oh, this lady is going to be kind of tough. And she ended up being like one of my most regulars. I bet I fished her like two or three weeks out of every summer back in those days. That must be fun having regular folks to come back and then, you know, develop kind of friendships. And uh, I think that happens a lot in fly fishing and life, you know, it's just read a book by its cover type of thing. But I seem to notice it a lot in fly fishing too, on both sides of the spectrum. I, I, you know, somebody, I think it's like that exterior, like the gear, the reel, like what, what does this guy or gal have? And then you judge them as like, maybe what you're not expecting and then sometimes it's the other way where you think somebody's really got it together and it's like oh, wow yeah. that's yeah, it's really like, actually uh, not like so much young bro guy from denver that comes over and it's like uh, this guy will be fun and good and it's like my overweight lady from texas with lipstick all over her teeth is like the highlight <laughs> what made the texas uh father and son so special for you i guess like i said like similar age and they continued to book me god like monthly and that built to something where I would fish them for like 30 days straight. Really? And, uh, is that typical? I mean, that's, that's a lot of fishing for somebody from Texas. They they loved it and they were fully hooked and I would show them all these cool things and like beaver ponds with big fish in them. And I had access to a bunch of private water and we'd go fish the ranches and those guys were so fun and easygoing. What are some of the things that people you think should be looking to take away from when they do go with a guided trip because we talk about this a lot on the show like you know the benefits of a guided trip uh, yeah, and the yeah. knowledge and things but what are some things besides like uh, cast better or yeah, just uh, don't rely on getting guided every time and just kind of be a sponge and absorb what your guide shows you and go out and try, like do it on your own like you can struggle all you like and that's how you learn yeah, I, I've not done a ton of guide trips in my life, but I, I do value them extremely when I do get to go and get as much knowledge as I can and and also see where they're fishing. You know, you talked in the beginning about riffles and bites and all that stuff. Like you can kind of, it really helps with, I think, learning a river, you know, like learning a, oh, oh yeah. this is the kind of water that we fish here this time of year and stuff like that. 
Well, let's talk a little bit about not your home waters, but one of the more special fisheries for you. Um, you mentioned before the show that you know you spent a lot of time on the Skagit system in Washington. And- oh, yeah. That place is such an amazing river to me after like uh, fishing in New Zealand and guiding in South America. That river is just such a beautiful, special place to me. What makes it? Well, first of all, how did you, can you walk me through a little bit of the timeline of, okay, I'm in Colorado fishing in Gunnison and then I'm going to all these different places and and how do you end up on the Skagit? Yes. So Colorado was probably until 2010 or so. And my wife, she's an acupuncturist and got into the Seattle Institute of Oriental Medicine, like super highly regarded program. And that's what moved us to Seattle. And I just really connected with that Skagit river and it doesn't give up its secrets easily. And so I paid my dues up there, like lots of days blanking and learning about like the super cool, uh, whatever, like the char that go live in the salt water and then come up the river, like how to go fish for those guys. Do you remember a, a specific day or a time on the river that stands out like a fish that is memorable for you? Yeah. My favorite fish that I've ever caught is a, like a big, like 17 pound hen steelhead out of a really tricky spot. That's kind of overlooked. And I think like a high teens hen is like the most exciting steelhead. Like they're super acrobatic and fast. Like this one was fresh out of the ocean. And uh, yeah, if you check out my Umpqua bio, like bio thing, that's the fish that I'm holding in that photo. That fish it was like a big cast from a high bank. And that fish grabbed super hard a long ways away and instantly jumped what seemed like six feet in the air, like crushing grab and then blast off. Yeah, and like instantly like way under my backing. Were you back by yourself? Uh, I was fishing with a, a buddy of mine from Montana here, uh, Clay, and and my other buddy, Charles St. Pierre. Super like renowned spay caster and spay casting instructor. And uh, he's just hanging out behind me like, holy shit, look at this. Andrew's got something exciting going on. Do you like to fish with buddies or do you prefer to fish oh, alone? Yeah, always. Really? It's, uh, it just kind of magnifies the fun, I think just having like heckling each other and witnessing each other's victories. Yeah. Like, uh, Charles got to see me fight and land that great big fish. Did you go to like New Zealand and those other places after Washington or oh, that was all was before. That, it was all before. I think I did the last like 2010 and then moved to Seattle like 2011. And your wife was with you through all that stuff. Yeah. She, uh, we spent six months in New Zealand prior to all this. We bought a camper van and drove it around and lived in it for about six months. And God, we didn't break up or kill each other. And (laughs) after that, we went to Alaska where I was guiding and she did housekeeping. Yeah, we moved from a van that was probably like 40 square feet to a weatherport tent that was probably like, I don't know, 100 square feet or something. And God, and like instead of just us, we had like 30 other coworkers to talk to in Alaska. That was a super crazy river to fish, and it's like the origins of spay casting for king salmon, which was like a pretty legendary place. And I got super obsessed with the mouse fishing for trout as like Rocky Mountain trout guy. Skin a great big rainbow, come up and eat a mouse pattern was just so fun. You learned all that kind of spay stuff when you got to Alaska? or oh, yeah, was that, that was all just guiding related up there. I guess my, uh, my most valuable spay instructor or dude that I learned from was uh, Brian Niska from v- like BC. He was That guy is such a good instructor and just generally really cool guy. 
Do you have any light bulb moments on up in Alaska? Anything that you, you remember being like, oh, it really helped me when I moved down to Washington and got into that system? What were some of the skill sets that, that you took down? Yeah, there's a really big difference between spay casting and spay fishing. It's like a lot of spay dudes just like wing it way out there and don't pay attention to how their fly is fishing. They're like so obsessed with the casting that they don't they don't kind of pay attention to fishing. Like my big lesson there is like fish the fly. Let's talk more about that. How do you fish the fly versus just cast? Because to me, when I look at spay casting as somebody with zero experience, the the casting is the thing for me. Like when I look at it, I'm like, all right, well, you got to figure that out first, I guess. But there's so much more that goes into it. So can you talk a little bit more about the fishing the fly versus casting? With the whole, like, they look at it like, I think this disconnect, like they're so hyper-focused on casting and I think with fishing it, you got to imagine how your fly is swimming and if it's going through fishy looking water and presented how you want it to. I think that's kind of true to anything like swinging soft tackles or stripping a streamer. Just got to kind of visualize where your fly is at and what it's doing out there. That seems especially beneficial to me when I'm fishing streamers. Oh, yeah. Or, um, and I, like I said, I haven't done spay, but that seems like a challenging aspect of it to me because it's such a, I mean, it's, it, it, I perceive it as a different water type or a different way to fish. And I, I, it's harder for me to imagine that fly versus if I'm, you know, dry fly fishing, that's pretty obvious. But like nymphing, I have a lot, a lot more experience with nymphing. And it's much easier for me to imagine the fly and the depth and the speeds and things. But when I, when it's further out and it's swinging and stuff, yeah. like I, I lose track of like maybe the distance to where that, uh, how far away is it, you know? What are some of the things that you that you do when you're trying to fish the fly to kind of help you imagine it? Or are there things that you look yeah, for in the uh, water types to keep you focused on that versus the other things? As soon as I like pick water that looks fishy and cast into it, and you might be like, all right, I better mend it first and let it drop in the water column or just throw it out there and let it move quickly without the big mend. Like, should you slow it down or speed it up? And just kind of like, like I said, visualize like my line is going in a line to there and my fly must be like six to eight feet behind the end of my line. Okay. So that's something that you learned up in Alaska that you took down to Washington. Oh yeah, definitely. And to trout fishing as well. Yeah. That's part of reading water. That is something that I don't think I thought about right away and probably still don't think about enough is, you know, okay. I think there's fish there, but am I is my fly actually getting there? The first yeah. stage for that probably for me is like, is my fly getting down? Yeah. I remember there was like, shoot, I'm going to interrupt you. There was like some old like quote, like uh, what's the difference between a good Colorado fisherman and a mediocre one, like one split shot. That's yeah. Like, I've uh, heard that before. Heavy game there. You got to like yeah, get your flies down to where the fish are. Yeah. And that's something that, I can see where that spay fishing would really help with that kind of just mindset overall with different things and, and streamers especially. So talk to me more about the Skagit system and, and exploring that water because when you got down there, that's a new river system. And we talked before the show about how much you enjoy it and how fun it was for you to, you know, go to all these little creeks that come off it. So can you, without, I mean... Without naming spots and stuff, can you just talk a little bit about like the topography and geography of it and what, what what's exciting to you about that? I just love the exploring aspect of fly fishing, just kind of uh, driving up and down that huge river and 
there's like a tributary stream coming in or like the other branch of some river or stream and just like i'm gonna go drive up that and see what i can find just exploring out there yeah i love that too there's i love driving a river i i mean i love wading and fishing but i love looking for spots as i'm driving along the river you know uh and picking out the spots that i'm going to go to and and kind of i just think that it's a good way to kind of learn the river the whole river quickly you know what i mean like i think sometimes i want to just get out and start fishing right away and maybe i get a short win there but the the long-term gain you know is to really get to know the river and if you don't have that much time you gotta go you gotta check it out you know especially if you're on a trip or something like that Oh yeah, like any river, you got to pay the dudes and go shoot. Not dudes, and go pay the dudes and go explore. Well, you could pay the dudes. You could pay the guy. Pay your guy. He could, he could help you explore yeah, a little yeah. bit. So, is it is the Skagit like a pretty big system? Is Skagit? It's on in the Cascades, right? And it's so it's west west slope mountains, but it's not in the peninsula. It's like Western Washington is kind of the designation there, and. I think that's what's cool about it for me. So I'm from Seattle area. Oh, I grew up in that in that area, and uh, man, I I wish I don't have a ton of regrets, but I I I did not spend a lot of time in the in those fisheries when I was a kid. Oh, yeah. My kid, my dad used to take me to Montana, and I used to work in Montana. And then so for me as a teenager, that was my thing. That's what I yeah. kind of imagined, and I just didn't. It was almost like I didn't bother with it or. Yeah, I was in school too. You know, be busy playing sports and and going to school. I guess like the grass is greener. Like Montana was like this amazing place, and the Skykomish River was just kind of a boring backyard spot. <laughs> I guess so. Maybe something yeah, like well, that. The green and the whatever, all the Seattle area rivers, like the Green River, and like so weird and boring. And there's yeah. Skykomish, and just kind of like forget about them and daydream about Montana. Exactly. I think that's exactly what I was doing. And, uh, I didn't really, I, I will say I went out there and fished a little bit like on the, um, Snoqualmie and stuff. Cause that was close to my house, but, um, I never had ton of luck, you know, just little, little fish and stuff. But I've heard that was, you know, shoot, that was 30 years ago or whatever. So probably changed a lot since then, hopefully for the better. I don't know. I mean, when I was a kid, those fisheries probably were, I don't know if they were worse off or better, I guess. Yeah. They're, uh. I think the typical trout fishing in a lot of Western Washington is kind of like little bitty guys. and Yeah, that's, that's what I remember. It's like uh, the Yakima River and some tributaries. And then the, the stillwater fishing in Eastern Washington is kind of a big deal that some guys get way into. It's like high desert lakes that are super fertile. Oh, yeah. I don't know much about that. I've been on the Yakima a bunch, though, for... For trout, but not when I was a kid. When I was a kid, I, it was it was like I said, daydreaming of Montana and stuff. And I don't think that's I, mean, I don't uh, <laughs> I wouldn't encourage people to take that uh, yeah. train of thought. So the Skagit, you enjoy exploring it. What is um, what's something that you remember learning on the Skagit that was really useful for you in your fly fishing journey, or like a you know, maybe another light bulb moment or something that really helped you progress as a fly fisher there. Look outside of the norm, like the, uh, the target species kind of thing. Oh, with the char you were talking about? Those char that would come from the salt water. And that's just like, uh, I love catching white fish out here in Montana. I don't really like go super hard, pursue them. 
but like nymphing, it's kind of fun. Like, oh, there's a decent fish on. Yeah, they pull, and I like them. I like whitefish. I wrote a, uh, I wrote a blog post called "In Defense of Whitefish," and it's like it's like three or four reasons why I think whitefish get a bad rap. And uh, I like catching whitefish. I, I like I like catching whitefish instantly because I think it's a nice big brown. Yeah, definitely. Then there's a there's a little dip in my excitement when I realize nope, this is fighting like a whitefish, and then I get my positive mental attitude back out, and then I'm happy to again happy again to catch the whitefish. Like the sad trombone. Yeah, there's no, I can't, I can't say that I don't get a little disappointed for a moment when I realize I got a whitefish on, but it's still fun. Yeah, definitely. So these char in, uh, on the Skagit, they're, are they, um, I guess, are they wild and reproducing or are they, um, what's the word? They're, they're native species and, and all that and stuff. How do you go fishing for those things? How do you, how would you target those those char? Is it a, a different kind of thing, or do you just get lucky one day, or do you have to actually specifically go target them? It's kind of like winter steelhead, just like spay casting with a sink tip on and kind of swinging a fly. Like I said, just kind of paying your dues and finding some spots where they tend to hang out. Okay, so they have kind of their areas that they like to be in yeah, that definitely. are, and you just got to go figure it out and find them. But you're fishing to them kind of in a similar way that you would fish to yeah, other species definitely. in the river. What are some of the other species in the Skagit that you would go for? And there's like there's sea run cutthroat, which are super popular in the northwest. They're they're like a trout-sized trout and not some wild fish. And you think sea run, like these giant sea run browns. And those sea run cutthroats might be like a six to eight inch fish. And like a 14 incher is like noteworthy. Like get the camera out, take a picture. I got this little 14 inch fish in the freshwater they'll typically hit dry flies and stuff and like little streamers i'm not really the expert on those things there's like pacific northwest people uh like my buddy britta and she's a uh, she's way into the salt water and kind of an expert on it yeah she's i think like instagram like sea fly something she's like super big like active on instagram if you ever like i she's super interesting and really funny you might try to hit her up and see if you can get one of these podcast guys going with her. Sure. Yeah. That'd be awesome. Uh, we'll, we'll definitely reach out to her and see if we can talk. So the main fish that you're going for in is uh, steelhead. Is that right? I mean, that was your, your main oh, yeah, definitely. focus. And can you talk a little bit about the steelhead in that area and uh, why you enjoyed fishing for them? I really liked the challenge of back in those days. It was when the numbers were super low and, it was like a pretty limited season, like super rewarding, like kind of high risk, big reward kind of thing. Like you might might go out and blank many days in a row and then you just get ripped and hook something. And it's a uh, super rewarding and super exciting. And were you guiding out there as well for that? I was. How about fishing like rigs? Like what kind of rig would you have out there? Yeah, just uh, any old spay rod kind of in that like, 13 and a half 14 and a half length and like skagit head and a sink tip on it i really like the uh, tube flies which are kind of off the radar of most trout fishermen they're uh it's like you tie your fly on kind of like a little plastic tube and it slides up onto your line there's like like a little hook that kind of rides behind it oh no i've never heard of this that sounds interesting it's uh if you just look up like tube steelhead flies like anybody can just kind of get a get an idea 
what's the benefit of those? Like, what? Why would they do that? Is just. I think uh, you hook the fish with like a I don't know like a kind of smaller wide gap hook, like a little octopus hook, instead of like a big ass like steelhead hook, like old timey like great big hook. The fish could probably throw that thing, and it's also more harmful to the fish. The bigger hooks. Yeah, like the smaller that smaller hook. Uh, the fish is more likely to stay pinned. What are some of the flies that I'm a I'm a slightly below f- average fly tire? Are there a couple flies that I could tie if I was going out uh, to fish in Western Washington for steelhead that would be oh, yeah, kind of useful? What would you recommend that I kind of spin up again? Slightly below average tire, so simplicity is key. Oh man. Uh- I think one of the best steelhead fishermen and guides of the Northwest has got to be Brian Sylvie down in Oregon. I think like his little fly, like the Sylvanator, it's just like a little bitty rabbit leech thing. That's a super simple to tie really effective fly. Whether you want to throw it on your trout rod and swing it for trout, they've got to be all over that thing. In the steelhead world, it's uh, super effective because it's uh, kind of smaller and sparser. And you can get those to drop in the water column. Instead of, yeah, like a super over, like overdressed bulky fly is just going to drop like a foot and swing like right under the surface. Like, yeah, like less is more to get that fly down in the zone. Is there anything that you remember really surprising you when you got into that fishery where you're like, this is really, I wasn't expecting this. Yeah, like the sheer size of it. Being like a trout guy and like the big rivers in Colorado is like the Colorado River and the Roaring Fork or something. And you're like, oh, that's a big one. And it's just like teeny tiny compared to those big Northwest rivers. I think like it would fish at like around 20,000 CFS or something. It's just great big. And How do you go about breaking that thing apart and reading water? And what are you looking for? Just like with water that big for steelhead in that area, what are you looking for? Like a little point that kind of breaks the current and any break is kind of a good like searching spot. It's just like trout. You look for those current seams. But in a giant river, it's just kind of like a current seam on a much larger scale. Are you in the boat mostly? Uh, no, it's uh, typically driving and walking. It's like road fishing. Yeah, you can certainly like float from spot to spot and not like Rocky Mountain, like bobber fishing out of the boat. It's just kind of transportation on those big rivers. Well, I want to ask you a little bit about your fly tying, but is there anything else that you want to bring up or that you want to share with folks about the Skagit River system or, or things that are uh, you think people would be interested to know about that or you'd like to share? It's like any Northwest River. Like there's all these little tributaries and just all kind of like your basic dry flies, the, like little buoyant things like God, like little foam flies, which has kind of been my world. You might catch a, a whole shit ton of like little bitty, whatever, like little cutthroats or something and you want something that's going to hold up and float for for a few hours of catching little fish. Durability. Yeah, like durability and buoyancy, which is kind of like my go-to small stream, small fish thing. Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about your fly tying and, and how did you get started in fly tying, first of all? That was a kind of a natural progression from being like, I love fly fishing and there's this other side of it that I want to learn about. Did you think that they grew together or did you have one kind of stand out are they equal to you in importance yeah, they kind of grew back then like i'd tie up this whole box of crappy flies and my dad and i would go use them and catch fish that kind of made it special at that point you mentioned little foam flies yeah i gotta ask you <laughs> the hippie stopper oh yeah i don't know why i think that's the most hilarious name ever i love it yeah, that's kind of caught on 
I think it's hilarious. I mean, I don't have anything against hippies. I mean, yeah, I, I like hippies. I don't hippies, really yeah. care, but my, uh, one of my, I don't have a mentor, but I guess the closest thing to a guiding mentor, my good friend Mort, and he guides on the Gunnison River in Colorado. He kind of like transitioned away from guiding to having his own small business, just like renting equipment and logistical stuff for the Gunnison Gorge. And so he, uh, he and I were guiding together. We had like kind of sensitive Southern California clients and we're telling them like, all right, on these wilderness trips, you might get more time to fish on your own. And like, I'm not right there looking over your shoulder. And they asked like, hey, what happens if I catch a fish and you're not there to net it? And Mart looks them dead in the eye and says, I just like to drag that fish up into the sand and give it the old hippie stomp and drop kick it into the river. <laughs> yeah, and they were like, just like so amazed to hear such an aggressive thing. Uh, just super, super funny. And I had never heard the term hippie stomp. <laughs> I'd never heard it either before yeah, I heard your fly. It just kind of stuck. And I was like, oh, this can kind of be like an homage to one of my buddies that taught me a lot. And Yeah. Do you have uh, um, preferences and like you said, little foam flies and like the types of flies that you like to tie? Do you tie more for, um, are you tying really functional for what you like to fish or wh- where do you kind of get motivated to, to, to design your flies? A really big, like, I guess, shaping aspect of my foam tying was guiding in the Gunnison Gorge in Colorado. Like that salmon fly hatch is legendary. And on a good day, my client dudes might get like 75 eats or something crazy. You're just like, you want to fly, but it'll hold up and float. That's what drew me to time, like great big foam stuff. Like my 64 Impala is like a great big salmon fly pattern. It's like all foamy and rubbery and it does the job. And I kind of transitioned from like fishing to excited fish that will eat anything is when I started doing dumb flies like hot dogs and pizzas, which I'm a, I got to give myself a plug. I'm so psyched that Umqua is going to start producing my pizza delivery. <laughs> like a little piece yeah yeah talk to me about that fly uh, i really from the the super aggressive fish during that salmon fly hatch i took those silly ideas to chile when i was guiding down there like big not pressured fish that would eat anything that floated by and so i was like doing hot dog and pizza flies and like little people like oh no mr bill like that old saturday night live thing yeah, yeah. It was so fun for me. I'd have dudes that flew halfway around the world and were paying like $10,000 for this fly fishing trip. Like this foreign land. They're like, hey, what are we going to fish with today? And they're like, hot dogs and pizzas. <laughs> <laughs> they were like, what the hell is this guy doing? I had this super fun guy from like Midwest or so, like two dudes, like best buddies. And they were like, oh my God, if I catch a fish on that pizza, we're going to have to stop and shotgun beers. <laughs> certainly happened it was such a fun day with super fun dudes you know that's going to happen if you're if you're if you're in the place where you're designing and fishing flies called pizza yeah for sure uh like this is going to get it done and i like beer so we're going to go shotgun beers after we catch a great big brown on a pizza so you've been tying flies when did you start tying flies when you were guiding in colorado oh yeah i guess like i initially got into it god probably like early teens like to go along with my uh my exploding interest and passion for fly fishing back then. And it was just kind of a progression. Like as I liked fishing more and more, I had to tie more flies to go along with, with each trip. Yeah. For the different trips. That's something that I, I do. I mean, I, I said slightly below average tire. It's probably because I don't really push myself enough in tying. I, I just kind of tie the flies that I'm really working on that, that, that I, that I know I'm going to fish and hopefully catch fish with. 
And it's fun to go on a trip and look and see, like, I might pick one, maybe two flies that I'm going to, like, I'm going to try some of them. Oh, yeah. That's uh, like everybody can get inspired by your time on the river or by somebody else. Yeah. I really want to give a big shout out to, I guess, my biggest fly tying inspiration. As far as I know, he's just like a fly shop manager, like older dude, and he's been around a game forever and deserves recognition instead of like all these Insta influencers and bullshit like that. Like this dude just was crushing in the 90s and he's got to be still crushing. It's uh, Scott Sanchez from Jackson Hole. He was like the OG foam guy, which was super inspirational to me as a teenager. Why? I was, I was like, these flies are super cool looking and it's like, they've got to be so effective. They float and it's just crap that I can get from Hobby Lobby. Do you find that there's any stigma around foam or that, I mean, is there any kind of like, well, I it's... Think there's like all of fly fishing has this like uppity, like the uppity dudes. Yeah. They're like, I only fish to rising trout and shit like that. And I'm like all like more fashion or shoot like more function and less fashion. Like I want to fly that holds up and floats. Instead of just being like all on my high horse saying I did this like stupid, like little delicate, fragile piece of crap fly that's all wispy and doesn't float and falls apart. Can't see it. Yeah. Can't <laughs> see it. Yeah. Can't drop anything off of it. Yeah, right. Yeah. If you grease it up too much, it sinks. <laughs> yeah. It's so stupid. Yeah, I've had I've fish flies like that and it's frustrating and oh, it's yeah. helped me go a little bit more towards foam, especially yeah. I mean I love a chubby, chubby Chernobyl is yeah, yeah, they get them and they're easy to see, which checks the boxes. And they're not too hard to tie, you know? Like, they're not too complicated. At first, I was intimidated by something, like a fly that looked like that. And you start looking at, like, squala flies and salmon flies. And, oh, yeah. But I feel like the, the chubby is kind of like my, you know, it's my, I can do this fly when I'm talking yeah, about the world. You got to have confidence builders. Like, yeah, every yeah. beginner is like San Juan worms, hares ears, and woolly buggers and eventually you start to graduate like oh the elk hair caddis and the prince nymph like slightly more involved flies with more difficult techniques yeah yeah and that there's certain ways to make a chubby look good or bad and i've tied a lot with like a crappy small wing just getting that wing proportion is the tough part what do you think about like switching out you've mentioned hobby lobby and stuff what do you think about like i've thought about this a lot you know when i started tying flies i was so concerned with the the fly recipe quote oh, recipe yeah. like oh, i need this and i need this and i need this and i think that's part of the reasons why fly tying becomes expensive oh, yeah. is because every fly has like this unique material but i guess what i didn't realize and what i'm interested in your opinion on is you know you can swap some of that stuff out right you start to feel inspired by materials and you can be like this is something that i i think i read from that scott sanchez guy he would go to like hobby lobby and look at all the beads and found like those weird like clear pat like plastic heart-shaped beads those were the original head for the double bunny it was like kind of like not his claim to fame but one of his bigger more effective flies like no big epoxy head just stick a clear bead on it like as you're like i just said as you get better you can just walk around the, the craft store and be inspired by stuff like look at this tinsel and this little poofy like little poofy chenille thing and you just think of how you can integrate it into a fly so you're of the camp that it's not as important um, exactly what material if you're if you're using purpose for it. I guess that's what I'm saying. Yeah, definitely. I guess even in my brain, even this is how bad it was. Like I would be like, oh well, this this pheasant tail is being tied with olive thread, and I only yeah. have 
brown thread, so I guess I can't tie it. You know what I mean? Like I just uh, like that's an early lesson that I learned from like one of my like a kind of like mentor guy. Like he worked at the fly shop near me when I was a kid. It was back like the St. Brain Angler in the Denver suburbs. I guess that shop got ran into the ground and this guy was the manager's like Mike Briscoe, like kind of old school Colorado guy. He told me like uh I was all like obsessed with the the nuances, like is this thread the wrong color? And what about this pheasant tail? It's kind of yellowish. And he held one up in front of me and just like moved it by all quick. Like, what do you think of the hiss? That's what the fish see. And that was I was like, it's always a you gotta put your fly in front of the fish and not just let it go zooming by above their head. Yeah, like we talked about earlier, like imagining where your fly oh, yeah. is in the water. And then thinking about that, even into your tying, like, you know, imagining what is the fly, what is the fish going to see and visualizing back to the fly and whatnot. Just, uh, I've always believed it's presentation over pattern. And so you got to stick your fly in front of the fish in a a believable fashion instead of just, uh, letting it go ripping by. Yeah. So, uh, you put a pizza slice well presented in front of a fish and they're going to eat it. It's like a, like glow bugs and it's like a bright, colorful thing. You just run it by a fish and fish don't have fingers. So if they see something they're curious about to go to inspect it, they got to grab it with their mouth. Is there other things that you think about in tying that you, you know, you, you visualize how the fly will be presented or, because that's something I, I, I had Pat Dorsey on the show a while ago and that was something that he brought up that uh, I hadn't really thought about, but people say presentation over fly selection, right? But part of presentation can be fly selection because the flies are going to present differently, even even at the basic level of a weighted fly versus a non-weighted fly in the example of getting a fly down. And so that's something that was a bit of a breakthrough for me is thinking about fly selection in the in the context of presentation as well. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you think about how a fly, how you visualize a fly will be, will look to a fish as you're, as you're tying. I like dry flies and like look at the underside as you tie it. And that's the fish's view of the fly. And I guess I want to circle back to you talking about Pat. He's a, one of Colorado's most legendary and skilled, like technical fishery guides and fly anglers. Like his home water is Cheeseman Canyon there in Colorado, which is supposed to be insanely difficult. When you're fishing like little teeny tiny flies to technical fish, that fly's got to look right. Like, like yeah. boost your confidence and you got to feel confident in what you're fishing. And if it's like super nuanced little midge and if it looks weird to you, you're going to doubt like, oh, the fish won't eat this because it's got maroon thread instead of red thread. And I believe confidence is a big deal there. And like those, those Colorado tailwater fish that have seen every fly under the sun, you got to get it right. Yeah, that's true. And like said, presentation matters with those flies too. So I'm, I'm not just picking this super specific fly uh, because I know it'll present to the fish in a way that this other one won't or something like that. Oh, yeah, that's a... So for you, when you're tying, you, you mentioned like with a dry fly, how the fish will see it from below. Are there other things that you think about as far as like from the fish's perspective, what I want them to see when I tie a fly? I think with dries, I imagine like the fish is looking up at it and streamers they're probably chasing it and so like the back or side profile of a streamer is kind of important and then like with nymphs you kind of got like all the like the euro nymphing geeks i'm not going to call them that in a bad way but it's like so technical and such a rabbit hole to fully geek out on 
Those guys <laughs> yeah. are like the, the trigger spots and like a little neon spot in a nymph. Like I said, anything that gets the fish's attention might be helpful. If the fish sees that, that neon orange thread instead of like like pale yellow. Yeah, sometimes I, I I do believe sometimes in some streams that it's like just showing them something different, like in pressured water. Like I've seen the pheasant tail a hundred times. I know if it's, oh, what's this one with the orange? I've never seen this before. Like you said, let me check this out. And I don't yeah, have like, fingers. So yeah, I'm going to go back in grab Colorado. It. Uh, God, I lived in Gunnison for a long time. Like 45 minutes away is like the legendary Taylor Tailwater. It's like one of Colorado's like big mysis fed, like mysis shrimp deals. Those fish see every mysis shrimp under the sun. And if you mix it up a little bit, that kind of tips the odds in your your favor. Yeah. So is that something you think about when you're tying? Uh, how can I kind of make this just a little oh, yeah. bit different, but still look natural? I want to divert to my favorite quote of all time. It's uh, without deviation from the norm, progress is not possible. That's uh, from Frank Zappa, whose music I kind of don't like. <laughs> it's like a brilliant quote. Yeah. Which kind of parlays its way into my tying. If it was just like old-timey guys fishing Joe's hoppers and dumb crap like that, we had Scott Sanchez who thought outside of the bat, like the box, and thought this foam stuff will work well. And that inspired me to start doing arts and crafts flies like pizzas and hot dogs. Well, that's cool. So I got to go back to the dry fly and the streamer. And you talked about presentation, like we, what do you want it, the profile from the back and the profile from below? What ex, what do you what are you trying to make it look like? Just is there a, like you, you what do you want it to look like in that profile for a streamer or a dry fly? I don't much care for super technical fishing and like anybody, I'd rather go catch dumb fish <laughs> if it's a, if it looks buggy. Like, does this look like an insect? It's got like little wiggly legs and kind of floats and just whatnot. That's why I think the stomper is such an effective fly. It floats well and has little rubbery legs and some sparkly stuff going on. That's like all the kind of triggering things. Yeah. Well, it hasn't just been tying. You know, you've recently started creating uh, bamboo and bamboo oh, rods and bamboo work. And um, I don't want to deviate too far from tying if you got other things to mention about tying but i'd like to get into bamboo and, and why that's been special for you yeah bamboo was a kind of a cool job to learn something that's totally outside of my comfort zone and i didn't make a full rod from start to finish ever i was like apprentice guy and helping out like our literal master craftsman at tom morgan like uh rick was such a nice guy and 40 years of experience and He'd learned from Tom Morgan a long time ago. And he was like, oh, you can't rush perfection and no mistake is not fixable kind of deal. And it was like, take your time and don't put some crappy rod out there. His attention to detail was insane. How did you get excited about or how did you get motivated to go doing bamboo? It was just uh, not working enough after my stroke and I knew Matt, oh shoot, like Matt and Joel over at Tom Morgan. And I was like, hey guys, I'm trying to get my first job after having a stroke. And is there anything I can do around the shop, like push a broom and do some menial task? And they're like, yeah, we need somebody to help Rick, which uh, was a super good fit. Like I learned better with kind of repetitive tasks that aren't overwhelming. And like Rick had me like pulling bamboo strips through the router to kind of uh, thin them out and just deal with like super like industrial kind of a uh, roughing steps and that's before it gets all artsy and hand planing and stuff 
has that been difficult for you? You mentioned your stroke, and I don't, I don't want to talk about it too much if you don't want to go into it. But how has that been? Like, have you been able to go back into fishing, or what's been some of the challenges, or how has that been for you in recovery? Yeah, yeah. I would be in the hospital, like imagining of like tying flies and going through the motions with my hands because my left hand didn't work very well. It was like stroke affected side. And I was watching my YouTube videos and visualizing myself doing the moves to tie a hippie stomper. I'm just like super hyper focused on like I will tie a San Juan worm one day and rebuild some skills. Yeah, and I guess with regard to fishing now, some knots are kind of tricky for me with my left hand not working right. Yeah. I've tried to tie hundreds of shoot hundreds and hundreds of blood knots, which is a little dexterity difficult for me. Which before uh my before my brain injury. That's a knot that I could have tied like drunk with my oars under my knees, spinning down a rapid. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's good that you're able to, you know, work in the shop and, and be around something that is still fly fishing too. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's fishy work, you know, you're in the, in the, in the place that you love to be, I guess. Oh yeah. I guess uh, like one other big thing was, uh, I could still cast a fly rod and double haul. And I guess like more importantly, as I can still cast a spay rod really well. Because I love doing the whole trout spay thing. And go fish the Missouri, kind of bigger, wider rod, shoot water and, and swing flies there. Yeah, because you're in Bozeman now, right? And how long have you been out in Bozeman? I moved here in 2014. And so I guess, is that like nine years ago? Yeah, so nine years. Yeah, yeah it's a beautiful place, man. Great fishing, great waters all around there. Yeah, good location with a lot of diversity. Did you move out there for the fishing and kind of just because it's awesome there? Like everybody else moves, it's just awesome. So That was one of the boxes that it checked here. Like I already had a friend group and knew people in advance. And it was a really good population for my wife to set up her acupuncture practice and let her get going. And, and she's built a really successful practice, which has been a big deal. And That's like awesome. I love fishing around here and we have some good friends, lots of outdoorsy stuff. Does she fish with you much? Oh, yeah. It's kind of hard to date for years and be married to a guide and not like not be not get into it. <laughs> What's that like? All positive experiences? Oh, God. Uh, like early on, I pushed her too hard, like float fishing her, like guiding her hard like a client. <laughs> I learned to just like back off and let her have fun. Yeah. And she enjoys it. Oh, yeah. She does. That's great. Yeah, she can cast a two-hander pretty well, and she loves dry and dropper fishing. That's uh, kind of perfect for some of the smaller waters around here. Yeah. All right, man. Well, before I ask you my last question, how can people find out more about you and uh, maybe purchase flies or follow you on your journey? And is there anything that you have exciting that you want to share with folks coming up? The only social media that I do is Instagram. That's kind of a good way to see what's up in my fly fishing world. And I try to, I've been trying to step back from it a bit lately. It's kind of felt like an obligation. And I just want to like share my, uh, my flies and my like, oh, look at this brown that I caught. Check it out. Not like uh, influencer stuff, which is a super big problem in fly fishing. I just kind of like uh, being present and putting my stuff out there. I guess like umqua.com that's like umqua flies you can find all my flies on there in addition to that just go to your local fly shop and ask for whatever like hippie stomper and grillos flies whatever 
any shop could special order them or probably has those in their fly bins. Okay. Well, we can link to that stuff in the show notes. All right. Yeah, yeah, so people it. can find all that. Is there anything else that you want to share about tying or, you know, your fly fishing journey before I ask my last question? Yeah. For me, fly fishing and guiding has always been about having fun in the outdoors, which I think should be a lot of people's basis instead of just like, I'm going to catch this big brown and have my photographer buddy take a good picture of it. And like, just go out there and mess around and laugh with your friends and break your crap off in the bottom and get stuck in the tree and get laughed at. Just like, I'll have like a good time there. Yeah. Last question. Ready? Yeah, let's do it. I was born ready. (laughs) If you could go back to when you first started fly fishing and give yourself two pieces of advice, one more of a philosophical piece and one more of a tactical piece, what would you tell yourself to help you progress as a fly fisher? I guess like the lesson that I've still retained is like, just have fun with it. It'd be super hard to tell a 13 year old, just just like a back down and like you're fishing too hard kind of thing. It's just like pure excitement back then. And so just like keep that excitement and fun alive. Oh God, like technical stuff. Yeah. Like, Oh shoot. I guess like a, how to handle fish better, like get your hand wet and, and don't drag it onto the rocks and like hold it up with a dry hand so your dad can get a picture. Yeah, just like technical stuff is respect those fish and the resource better. Yeah, like uh, back in the day, before we knew how stupid and lame it was fishing for spawners, it takes like a special kind of stupid to fish to a spawning fish these days. Yeah, so like back in those days, my dad and I, we heard about this place in Wyoming, got a just like on the North Platte, like a few hours from Colorado. And we're like, oh, you can go fish for these fish on their spawning beds and catch great big rainbows. Yeah, we had no clue. Like you could look at them off the bridge and you'd be like, oh, that's a big one there. And look at that huge one. Just go go throw glow bugs at spawners. Like not a lot of people. Yeah, back in those days, like early 90s, nobody had a clue. Yeah, I mean, that's something that I think is a really good point. And people don't know. And I mean, so... It's harder now to not know, but I do think, I still do think people that are newer to the sport, there's a learning curve there and it maybe we can, we can debate how fast that learning curve should happen and what they should and shouldn't know. But at the same time, like it's, it's not something that, you know, you just don't, you're not born with that knowledge in your brain it has to get put there somehow. I think that's something that like through progression, like shoot like progression and hitting up your local fly shop and learning stuff and yeah people get guided every guide should teach their people to treat a fish right that's true yeah definitely like every fly fishing class that most shops teach like proper fish handling would be a really good way to integrate that into people's journey for sure andrew thank you for being on the podcast i've really enjoyed talking with you thanks man like i said i'm always honored when people have the interest in hearing my crap about fly fishing and not crap but my uh all my years of BS being around it. No, it was a pleasure and uh, I learned a ton and uh, I'm really excited for you and fishing journey moving forward. So thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you for the time and letting me talk. Thanks for listening to the Wade out there fly fishing podcast. You can learn more about some of the topics we discussed in today's episode show notes for more fly fishing ideas, stories, and artwork check out my blog and online gallery at wadeoutthere.com. 
you want to make Wade Out There a part of your own fly fishing journey, please subscribe and share. Until next time, Wade Out There. <laughs>